It is a pleasure to introduce today's expert, Dr. Jennifer Kalusker. Dr. Kalusker is a clinical psychologist whose specializations include autism spectrum disorders and other developmental disabilities, anxiety disorders, and behavior management for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children. Her focus is on strengthening a child's coping skills through specific skills-based interventions that are practical, efficient, and can be used to improve their functioning at school, home, and the community. Again, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Kalusker. Thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about um, parenting children with ADHD and their non-ADHD siblings. Throughout this presentation, um, a the theme will be emphasized on emotional dysregulation in children with ADHD and how helping children with ADHD with their emotional and behavioral dysregulation can be helpful to, to their functioning, of course, and to the functioning of the entire family unit. Um, so I'll first review some approaches for improving emotional and behavioral regulation in children with ADHD, because of course, if our aim here is to improve family relationships and sibling relationships, um, we want to, to make sure we're, we're doing what we can to improve the, the child's emotional and behavioral regulation. Um, we'll also review differences in parenting ADHD and non-ADHD children and how we can address conflicts that might come up due to these differences. Uh, last but certainly not least, um, so one learning objective is to better understand the role of mindfulness and mindful parenting in improving children's emotional regulation. Um, I first became interested in the role of mindfulness, uh, for one, because I'm primarily a cognitive behavioral therapist, um, but the newest wave, so to speak, of cognitive behavioral therapy entails um, acceptance-based treatments, which, which include uh, strategies such as mindfulness. Um, and I think it's, uh, the other reason why I'm interested in mindful parenting is um, I've become interested in it since becoming a parent myself and realizing how, you know, how we approach our own emotional regulation and um, our self-care is so important to um, being able to implement the strategies. Uh, because as we know, uh, for one, the devil is in the details when it comes to behavioral strategies, but also the strategies themselves might be straight, straightforward, but actually implementing them consistently um, can be quite challenging. So I start off with um, a vignette here of two boys. This is not a specific case that I um, have encountered. Um, it's more so a compilation of common issues that come up that have come up in my clinical practice. And you can see here that um, the two children represented in this vignette, Jay and Andrew, are similar in age because oftentimes these conflicts arise more so in, in children who are similar in age, um, who have a similar peer group, um, go to the same school and such. So I'll just read this and I'm gonna be referring to this vignette throughout the presentation. So Jay is a nine-year-old boy whose 10-year-old brother Andrew has ADHD combined presentation. So that means he has clinically significant symptoms of both inattention and hyperactivity impulsivity. 
Jay is often annoyed by his brother. Andrew needs several reminders to brush his teeth and get dressed. The boys who attend the same school are often both late because of Andrew's disorganization. Andrew needs his mother to sit with him while he completes homework, and Jay has to wait if he needs help with his. Andrew receives a prize for completing homework without arguing. Jay thinks it's unfair that Andrew gets rewarded for something he is expected to quote unquote just do every day. Also, Andrew often shouts and has broken several of Jay's possessions. Jay also believes that Andrew's behaviors put their parents in a bad mood. He often complains to his parents that they quote unquote never get to do anything. So, like I said, I'll be referring to this vignette throughout the presentation. Um, but in the meanwhile, here are some questions to consider. What is the role of emotional and behavioral dysregulation in Andrew's behaviors? How can their parents address these difficulties? And how can their parents manage the conflicts caused by differences in their treatment of the two children? And lastly, what can their parents do to better regulate their own emotions? You know, referring to how Jay was complaining that he believes Andrew's behaviors put their parents in a bad mood. Okay, so first I'm going to focus on the role of emotional and behavioral dysregulation in ADHD. Um, more recently, we've, we've begun to conceptualize ADHD as a neurodevelopmental disorder. Although we've, we've known it to be neurodevelopmental in nature for some time, it's only recently that we've formally put it in, placed it in that section of our diagnostic manual. Um, and what comes with it being a neurodevelopmental disorder is that it, it tends to impair various areas of development. Um, so there is evidence that children with ADHD are more uh, likely to experience impairments in learning, uh, language skills, self-help skills, and social skills. Um, one of the areas that children with ADHD are more in which children with ADHD are more likely to experience difficulties is an area called executive functioning. Executive functioning, which oftentimes is independent of intelligence. You can have very bright, intellectually very bright kids who struggle with these functions, executive functions. They refer to the cognitive skills that are responsible for um, behaviors such as, well, inhibiting behaviors, um, as well as behaviors involved in planning and organizing tasks and activities. Um, one area of executive functioning, which I'm going to um, focus on particularly today, is emotion regulation and how that impacts children with ADHD. This is one of the visuals that I sometimes use when I'm helping children improve their emotional regulation skills. I would say that helping children improve their emotional regulation is a core aspect of the work I do with children with ADHD and, and other neurodevelopmental disorders. Sometimes I start off by helping a child better understand what makes them uncomfortable versus comfortable, really breaking it down for them. And I often use visuals to help them pin point, even if they're telling me non-verbally um, at times uh, how they're feeling um, and being able to describe, identify, and describe those feelings. And again, I, I work with kids who are intellectually quite high-functioning, um, have very high IQs, yet have difficulty with identifying and understanding their basic emotional experiences. So actually identifying uh, one's emotions um, being able to identify them and clearly articulate them, express them in a in a, in a, in a sorry in an adaptive way, um, 
represents a primary and very important part of the work I do with kids. This is the well-known feelings thermometer. You can find many representations of the feelings thermometer online. Um, and it's another way of visually representing various feelings and helping children um, identify their feelings. Okay, um, so here I'm referring to um, uh, Russell Barkley, he's an ADHD expert who's spoken about and written about rather emotion regulation skills um, in children with ADHD. And there are certain aspects of emotion regulation um, that are specifically implicated in kids with ADHD. So one aspect is being able to inhibit your expression of emotion. Um, so for example, feeling angry and being able to inhibit the behavioral correlates of anger, such as hitting, throwing something. Um, so oftentimes when we have trouble inhibiting expression of, of anger, let's say it'll lead or expression of any emotion, it'll lead to emotional impulsivity. Um, and then the second aspect that kids with ADHD struggle with um, in particular is moderating the expression of the initial um, emotional reaction. So feeling anger, for example, but being able to self-soothe enough so that we, we you know, um, express those emotions in a socially acceptable manner. The emotions that are typically implicated, that are typically difficult for children with ADHD to regulate include frustration, impatience, and anger. Okay, so I wanted to first review strategies for parenting ADHD children and helping um, children with ADHD um, regulate emotions better because the more that we can ensure we're using effective strategies, the less tension there's going to be in the family and hopefully, you know, things can be uh, more balanced um, in terms of the time spent. So sometimes it seems like we're, we're putting more time and effort into to all these strategies, but remember the end result is, so, is that the child with ADHD shows fewer problematic behaviors, which are really um, draining our attention and resources. Um, so first, I want to emphasize in this presentation antecedent strategies. So um, many of you uh, may be familiar with the ABCs of behavior and antecedent strategies refer to um, strategies set up to prevent uh, the triggers. Antecedents refer to the triggers of behavior. Um, and also antecedent strategies kind of, um, they speak to uh, the setting events of behavior too. Setting events are more distant triggers of behavior, such as if a child is not feeling well, or if they're hungry, or you know if they had um, a negative event in the beginning of the day. Um, so first and foremost, you know, sometimes it's the simple stuff that we need to focus on. Um, and before I try to teach a child how to cope with discomfort, um, I try to help them advocate for themselves and, and educate parents about helping them feel more comfortable. So again, I'm focusing on the really simple stuff here, but making sure that a child is not hungry, um, you know, planning in advance with packing snacks, for example, that a child is well rested, if there's poor sleep hygiene, um, addressing that poor sleep hygiene can be, can, can really make a difference um, in setting them up for success. Um, the other strategies include providing clear expectations for behavior. I find that with kids with ADHD, you have to 
provide, um, you have to be cl crystal clear with what you're expecting from them at the moment. And they may need a repetition of, they oftentimes need repetition of directions and repetition of those expectations. They also need multiple ways of processing information, of being presented information. And that's why visuals tend to be successful um, for kids with ADHD. So um, I have some images on this slide. One is a time timer. You can purchase one on timetimer.com. And um, I actually have an app on my iPhone um, that's called Countdown that, that is essentially a time timer. Um, you see the, the, the outline of a person that's a graphic organizer that can be very helpful with academic tasks such as writing and organizing ideas and a visual schedule which could be really helpful for instance to Andrew um, when he's trying to get ready in the morning and in terms of organizing his behaviors. Um, so using humor, I have that in all caps. There's so many benefits of using humor. For one, it just breaks the tension in the household. Um, it can help parents with their own emotion regulation during tense moments as, you know, um, working with kids with ADHD, parenting kids with ADHD can be frustrating at times. And, and we kind of have to give ourselves a break, break and lighten up uh, sometimes, lighten up the mood. Um, and it could also, when a child is, you know, kids with emotion regulation difficulties oftentimes get stuck. They get stuck in the negative emotion. And we kind of want to get them to move on, to shift from being stuck on that negative emotion to moving on and focusing on what they need to do at the present moment to self-soothe or to go about their daily activities. And using humor can help with that. Uh, modifying challenging tasks, like giving only one direction at a time, for example, um, establishing eye contact and using nonverbals, all these strategies blend together, as you can see. Um, I emphasize in terms of academic work, uh, I emphasize quality over quantity. So maybe um, we need to consult with a child's uh, school personnel about, you know, uh, being okay with a child doing less homework, but, you know, doing an adequate job, a thorough job on that homework. Um, and then the last point I have here is telling children what to do as opposed to what not to do. Again, helping, that helps make the directions crystal clear to children. Um, and oftentimes when I'm doing behavioral training with parents, I try to identify one or two, or with teachers, I try to identify one or two problem behaviors and make the positive opposites of those behaviors the targets of the, the primary targets of intervention. So for example, keep, it, keep your hands to yourself as opposed to don't hit or touch. Um, sometimes a good way of communicating, having a communication system uh, with kids with ADHD uh, could be communicating with a one to five scale. And you can use uh, the one to five scale for various problem behaviors, uh, ranging from um, emotion regulation, you know, referring back to the feelings thermometer, to things like voice volume and how um, how they're moving their bodies, you know, you're, you're screaming, you're at a five, I need you to take it down to a three. Um, so another point I have, have here is prompting appropriate emotional expression with reflection skills and visuals, again, using a feelings thermometer. Reflection skills, by that I mean saying to a child, it looks like you're frustrated right now, naming that, that feeling for the child. 
Um, I can't emphasize the importance of validating emotions. Um, I really can't overemphasize the importance of it. Um, and validating does not mean condoning the behavior. So for example, I can understand why you're frustrated that you can't have a brownie for breakfast, um, but these are the reasons why, and you know, we have to stick, we have to, I have to, you know, stress this limit with you. Um, so um, you know, you're allowing emotional expression, but, and I'll, and actually I'll get to this in a second, how to put a cap on that emotional expression to encourage more adaptive, positive behaviors. Um, we want to teach a child, uh, with ADHD to problem solve in a flexible way. Oftentimes when kids with emotion dysregulation are stuck, so to speak, on a negative emotion, one of the reasons for that is that they're not seeing all the possible solutions to a given problem. They're like, I must have a brownie for breakfast and that's it, you know? Um, so we want to try to, you know, help them be more flexible, uh, giving choices to a child. That's why we say give choices, right? Because we're trying to encourage flexibility by modeling that flexibility, but also guiding them through flexible problem solving. Like these are the ways that you can get what you're, you want. You're just going to get what you want in a different way than, you know, what you expected. Um, I found the social storybook by uh, Carol Gray to be very helpful in, in facilitating problem solving and helping children understand various social situations. And I've also um, stolen some catchphrases from, from her social stories, such as it's okay to do things another way and it was fun, but now we're done. Again, encouraging flexibility. Some of these uh, other strategies um, focusing on the consequences of behavior may sound familiar to you, such as consistent follow through. Um, you know, I always tell parents I don't expect perfection from them because I don't expect perfection for, from myself. Um, but we want to try to be as consistent as possible. Um, by be flexible, but try not to give too many chances or exceptions. I mean, again, being flexible, such as modifying instructions. Um, offering choices, again, focusing on the antecedent strategies. But once a limit is set, you know, we don't want to give too many chances or exceptions um, because then the child will learn that that's going to be allowed um, every time. Uh, I'm a big proponent of natural rewards and consequences. Many clinicians are. Um, so for example, when you finish all of your morning tasks, you get to watch TV. You know, that's, that's a natural consequence of a positive reward, rather, sorry, a natural reward of completing your morning tasks in a timely manner. If you make a mess, you have to clean up the mess. That's a natural consequence. Um, and providing those rewards and consequences as immediately as possible. Um, in terms of timeouts, I'm sure many of you have heard of timeouts as a strategy. Um, timeouts are best served briefly, not just for children with ADHD, but, but in general. You know, you want a timeout to be successful. And oftentimes parents struggle with timeouts because their ch child won't stay in timeout um, or it's not practical to, they find it impractical to implement. So all the more reason to, to serve that timeout briefly and in a non-distracting environment, like no timeouts in, in the child's bedroom, for instance. Um, so what to do when a child is having trouble self-soothing? That's what my last point here refers to. Um, because of course, children with emotion dysregulation have a great deal of trouble self-soothing. So you want to validate their feelings. You want to be there to, you know, be the loving parent you want to be, giving, giving hugs and helping them soothe. 
but and being okay with the um, the expression of emotion. But we also want to help children put a cap on their negative emotion expression. Um, again, helping them get from a stuck place to a place where they're shifting um, either to a, a less negative emotion, more positive emotion, or shifting to a solution. Like, okay, well, I'll do it this way instead and everything's going to be just fine. Um, so there are visual ways you can help a child with this, like handing them a tissue and saying, okay, we're done now, giving them a time limit um, for how much longer, okay, you can cry for 10 more seconds, but then I need you to take deep breaths. Now, if you could go over how you use the uncomfortable slash comfortable visual, the sad face, the pizza, the roller coaster with children. So if you can uh, go a little bit more into that, that would be great. Absolutely. Um, so, right. So this this is an example that I came up with with um, in terms of the pictures that I that I chose here. But when I'm working with a child, I actually try to personalize it to them. Maybe some kids hate pizza, you know? Um, I have met a few who do. Um, so I do try to create these visuals with the child to individualize them. Um, and oftentimes using the pictures of, of the child himself or herself um, is helpful as well in getting them to engage with the visual. Um, so basically what the pizza represents in, in this visual, um, is basically the person's balanced, comfortable place, not too excitable, like you would expect um, somebody, you would expect to feel the way you would expect to feel on um, a very exciting roller coaster, um, but not incredibly, not particularly distressed, of course. Um, so this is a great question because I didn't go into details about how I use this, but and also um, what I forgot to mention, and you're reminding me with this question, is that what I've seen in kids with ADHD, when we're talking about emotion dysregulation, is not only a child who has trouble self-soothing when they're very angry or frustrated, but sometimes I, you know, oftentimes I see increased excitability in kids with ADHD. So when they're super happy, they have trouble coming down from that super happy elated state. Um, they might scream when they're excited about something, which again is appropriate if you're on a roller coaster, but maybe not so appropriate when you're talking with me in the office and we're stand we're sitting two feet away from each other. Um, so the per the way I use this visual is that the middle is really your goal. That's that's your that's that's your balanced place. Um, I, I hope I answered the question that way. If there, let me know if there are more specifics about how to use this. But basically, I'll I'll plot this with different experiences that elicit um, the uh, various degrees of emotion. Thank you, Dr. Kaluska. That was really helpful. Okay, let's proceed with the presentation. Okay, I'm gonna just jump ahead here. Okay. All right, so um, I, I want to talk about the differences in parenting ADHD children. So basically what an ADHD child might need that um, uh, a non-ADHD child might not need. Um, so really one of the themes of my presentation here is stressing that when we're treating, you know, we're treating children differently with ADHD versus non-ADHD children, um, the 
differences are really in the antecedent strategies. I mean, that's what I would recommend at least. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that um, in terms of emphasizing differences in antecedent strategies versus consequences. Um, but I'll just say now that it has to do with those environmental modifications we spoke of, such as using visuals, um, maybe um, giving one direction at a time, maybe having to do less homework, for example, um, you know, fewer problems, that is. Um, ADHD children need more frequent immediate reinforcement. So oftentimes parents um, and teachers will come to me saying they've tried a behavior plan or a token economy, it didn't work. Um, and when I look at the details of it, I see things like, well, the child has to earn a certain number of points in order to earn a weekly prize. Like if they earn 50 points, at least 50 points um, in the course of the five uh, school days, they earn some kind of, um, reward over the weekends. And the truth is, many of the children I work with simply cannot wait an entire week. It's, it's not that reward is not going to be sufficiently meaningful to them to motivate more adaptive behavior. Um, so they might actually need reinforcement throughout the day. And, and you know, um, many times, I mean, I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of having coming up with small and simple rewards that are at the same time rewarding to the child. So getting to help hand out papers or run an errand for the teacher um, could be something. Sometimes I'll tell parents actually, you know, if a child usually has briars or, you know, I don't mean to name drop in terms of labels, but like a more, uh, an ice cream uh, that you can find in any grocery store, if that's, if that's the, you know, usually what they have for dessert, maybe getting a special kind of ice cream would be the reward. Sometimes, you know, rewards can be simple to come up with, but still sufficiently motivating for the child. Um, ADHD children oftentimes need more movement breaks. Some of you might have heard of a sensory diet, and, and that's really, oftentimes a sensory diet does entail uh, movement breaks that could be as simple as doing some jumping jacks in between math problems. Um, and again, giving them that support for self-soothing. Um, and that could be really challenging because, of course, you know, some of the behavioral indicators of poor emotion regulation, like excessive crying or shouting, you know, they're, they're maladaptive. And of course, we, the reason why parents are bringing their children to come see me is that they want to see fewer of those behaviors. Um, so, but they, but at the same time, they're going to need more, uh, more guidance in self-soothing, more prompts to take deep breaths um, and, to, and to focus on shifting to solutions. All right, and now I'm sure the moment many of you have been waiting for, addressing conflicts between ADHD children and their non-ADHD siblings. Um, so one thing I recommend is, and when I work with parents, um, I see quite a range in their perspective on um, how open they'd like to be about the ADHD diagnosis. Um, many parents I work with, they want to be open about it. They want everybody working with the child, uh, the school, to know about the diagnosis, for example. Um, and as we know, uh, that, that acknowledgement facilitates um, getting the services that many of our children um, very much need. Um, 
other parents are more reluctant to share the diagnosis with others and to the child himself or herself. Um, I tend to promote sharing the diagnosis, um, and I believe that it can be shared in, in positive ways. Um, sometimes I'll actually draw a visual of the brain and talk about, you know, how ADHD impacts the brain in a fun way. Uh, you can even have kids create uh, a brain out of Play-Doh, for example, and talk about how their brains are different, but not necessarily, you know, of course, trying to, trying to explain those different differences in a positive way. One of the favorite, uh, my favorite ways that I've heard from other professionals, I have a picture here of a Ferrari, I Google imaged it, um, is talking about how um, a child with ADHD has a Ferrari brain that is exceptional and fast and awesome and cool, but you know, sometimes has trouble with putting the brakes on behavior. Um, in terms of explaining the ADHD diagnosis to siblings, um, I mean, I really would have to take it on a case-by-case case basis, of course, um, but if not, if a parent chooses not to share the ADHD diagnosis with siblings, at least talking about how we all have strengths and weaknesses and being open about what we're, what, we're work, what everybody is still working on, every child is working on something, um, and you can also, when it comes to modifications, that the, so like let's say Jay says, well, why does Andrew only have to do the even-numbered math problems and I have to do the entire math sheets? You can explain that modification in a way that, that benefits Jay. Like I'm going to have time, to, have more time to spend with you because I'm giving Andrew what he needs um, to succeed. And that's really the theme that we want to have. We're giving each child what they need to succeed. And if we're doing that, we're benefiting the entire family system. Um, there's nothing wrong with providing rewards to non-ADHD siblings for behaviors they are working on. Again, we're all working on something. And even though ADHD, kids with ADHD do need more immediate reinforcement, um, oftentimes that Im more immediate reinforcement comes in the form of tokens, which, you know, if the, if the non-ADHD sibling would like tokens, you know, again, nothing wrong with, with giving them the same antecedent strategies, you know, even if they... Uh, probably don't need those need those strategies as much as the child with ADHD. Um, so I have a pair of glasses here because again, it's to emphasize that you know we all we all have areas that we're working on. Even you know what I was talking when I was talking about executive functions, uh, which include again. Uh, flexibility, planning, organizational skills. Everybody has an executive functioning profile. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm thinking now that ADHD is now conceptualized as a dimensional disorder, meaning that um, the, the behaviors range in severity across the population. So in other words, we probably have, you know, a little maybe mild forms of some of the difficulties that, that we see in our kids with ADHD, but, you know, they've been provided this label because the level of severity in those symptoms has ex exceeded the clinical threshold. Um, so the reason I have the glasses here is that, you know, first of all, there, there is no shame in, you know, saying I have weaknesses in certain areas and 
and I need strategies um, or extra supports to get to get me to where I need to be. Um, and also in emphasizing the role of antecedent strategies versus consequences, that you can actually have similar expectations for an ADHD child and their non-ADHD siblings, such as the expectation that they complete homework. You can have that expectation for, for all of your children, but the child with ADHD might need to be set up with different kinds of supports to make that happen. Um, another thing you might want to do just to make sure that uh, to, to avoid um, resentment building in, in the non-ADHD child is try to balance praise between the two siblings. Um, sometimes I find it this helpful. I find this helpful as, as a parent um, almost to keep um, a checklist, not a checklist, but uh, a count in my mind. Um, uh, it's more like a sense and a numerical count of how much I'm praising one child over the other. And then if I find that the balance is tipping towards one child, you know, in favor of one child, I try to balance it with praising the other. And, and there's so much that you can praise children for, um, and it never, you can't spoil a child with praise. Um, also, I do believe that in, you know, uh, giving a sense of protecting the non-ADHD sibling, as we know, kids with ADHD sometimes are more prone to aggressive acting out behaviors. And it's important to have what's known as standing rules, which basically standing rules um, imply that there are these very concrete rules, even if you have to write them out and, and put them on your refrigerator, um, that lead to immediate consequences. You know, so I'm going to help you get your home work done and, and such. But if you hit your brother, you're going into timeout right away, or you're getting a privilege taken away right away. Um, so I think that we want to do our best to not uh, condone negative behaviors because of an ADHD diagnosis. So we send off, first of all, we're helping the child with ADHD that way. And we're also sending the message that we're supporting and um, keeping the non-ADHD, keeping everybody in the family safe. Um, I, I have found it helpful sometimes when I'm working with children who are coming with difficult, various difficulties related to emotion regulation, um, or other behavior or behavioral difficulties to enlist a sibling in helping their child, uh, the child, sorry, the, their sibling with ADHD. Of course, you have to keep that person's, uh, the sibling's safety, um, that that's a first and foremost priority, of course. Um, but when helpful, like in terms of homework completion, for example, or helping the child stay focused, um, and, of, and that again is um, kind of a recommendation I give saying at the same time that I take that on a case by case basis. Sometimes it's not appropriate um, to do that, but, but sometimes it works really well. So that's why I list it here. Um, Special time is a treatment uh, that's part of an empirically validated approach called um, parent-child interaction therapy. Um, and I believe it's, it's, very, it's, a, it's a great tool to use with all children, um, so even the non-ADHD sibling. And that entails letting the child lead in, in the activity, um, pray, giving specific praise of the child's behavior, um, trying to ignore some of the annoying but less concerning behaviors that they might show during that special time, reflecting and describing, uh, reflecting on their emotional states and describing what they're doing to show that you're engaged and really giving them positive attention. 
Another thing, and, and this again speaks to when siblings are, are um, similar in age, it's really, it's okay for siblings to do things separately. I've worked with quite a few families where the siblings are very close in age and um, there's this hope amongst parents that they're just going to be best friends and they're going to do everything together. How awesome is it that you guys are close in age for that reason? Um, but at the same time, it oftentimes does not work out that way and that's okay. It's okay for them to be engaged in separate activities. It's okay to do um, to spend special time with one sibling and then to do something else with the other sibling. Um, but as I mentioned before, and this is kind of going back to the first question that the audience asked about, you know, how you can, you know, better balance time between the two siblings. Um, you can try to select an activity that both um, or multiple siblings are more likely to be able to engage in together, like maybe a certain game um, that's less competitive um, or an art activity or a cooking activity um, where you find they're less likely to argue and more likely to get along. Um, and you can, you know, that that could be a great time to catch them being good, so to speak, um, you know, good to each other and well behaved in general and to give ample praise and even rewards. Like if you want to have a reward system for positive sibling interaction where both siblings or multiple siblings are working towards a big family reward, like getting to go out to eat, for example, um, that's fine. I would just recommend choosing, you know, short periods of time to to implement that system and trying to catch them when they're being good. When all else fails, I am a proponent of, um, I do believe in fair does not mean equal. Um, and there are very sensitive ways that you can explain explain this concept. There are certainly insensitive ways that we that we can that we can um, state that. Uh, that saying, um, but I think saying it in a sensitive way, I think could have a great impact on kids. Um, and it's it's an important concept for all of us to learn, um, you know, as we're all people to learn as they're making the transition, of course, from childhood to adulthood, that not everything in life, um, you know, is going to be fair. And sometimes that's something to speak up about. And sometimes, you know, that that is okay. And, and trying to explain why that's okay. Okay, and finally, um, I'm going to talk about mindfulness skills and mindful parenting um, with the emphasis here on how your self-care as a parent is going to impact the emotional health of the entire family as a whole. So there are many good reasons to focus on yourself and your own emotional regulation skills, um, and you don't have to have an ADHD diagnosis to, to want to do this, um, you know, because parenting is a frustrating business business for everybody, no matter how good your intentions are. Um, and at the same time, we, we very much want to be positive role models for our children. So here's in a nutshell some steps you can do. And, and I found this just so helpful as a parent that I feel like I, I just need to um, emphasize this when I'm working with parents. Um, observing your feelings without reacting to them is really the core of mindfulness skills and mindful parenting. You want to actually describe to yourself or use a lot of self-talk. Um, I feel the frustration building up in me right now. This feels really bad. And you can 
describe that are, you know, maybe actually not saying this feels bad, maybe this saying, you know, I'm, it feels like a tightness inside of me because we want to stay away from judging language and just describing how that feels and, and experiencing the feeling within you without doing anything to respond or react to it. You eventually want to respond in a positive way, but you don't want to react um, impulsively. And you can tell yourself, you know, this feels uncomfortable, this feels, this feels bad, although actually I might revise this slide because, again, you want to stay away from non-judging language, um, but I can stand it, I can stand this, I can, I can do this, really empowering yourself. Um, taking some time to understand the function of behaviors, you know, um, so a lot, so what the literature tells us is that um, what makes us the most likely to be ineffective as parents is when we is, is based on the attributions we place on child behavior, meaning what we think the causes of the behavior are. So he's acting like that just because he wants to hurt me is more likely to lead to poor frustration tolerance in ourselves. You know, I know I would be more likely to snap at my child to, you know, at my children to yell, you know, if I, if I really believe that they were doing it just to get at me. Um, but if we can ex say to ourselves, you know what, he really, is asking for attention now, not in the best way, but that it, there, there is a good reason behind every behavior, even negative behaviors. Um, and just believing in your own inner wisdom to problem solve. You wanna, you wanna be able to shift yourself from a place of being stuck on a negative emotion to a positive place of problem solving. And I hear many parents telling me, you know, they're exhausted. They've been trying these strategies for years and, um, you know, they've been dealing with these issues for years. Um, and, and it's tough. And sometimes we do need to take breaks. We need to get a babysitter and go out for a night and take care of ourselves and get plenty of rest and eat well ourselves. Um, and, and you'd be surprised at how much, you know, inner wisdom you have and how much strength that you have to keep on going. Um, so in summary, um, improving a child's emotion regulation skills will help reduce problem behaviors, which will help the family unit as a whole. Um, when we're talking about differences in parenting ADHD children and non-ADHD siblings, we want to focus more on differences in how we modify the environment as opposed to implementing consequences. Um, so, um, so keeping the non-ADHD child safe by having standing rules and consistently and immediately implementing consequences will help uh, prevent resentment in the non-ADHD children. Uh, being open and positive about differences will reduce resentment as well. And mindfulness skills are a great thing for both parents and children. I've begun, you know, in incorporating it into my practice with children as well, using simple mindfulness skills with them. So our first question, um, comes from a parent who says that she has a um, girl son who um, has been, uh, does not have ADHD, um, but a nine-year-old son who does. So um, what she's seeing is that the six-year-old is starting to exhibit some of the behaviors of the nine-year-old. And she wanted to know if you had any techniques on how to deal with that. Um, having one child who does have ADHD is older and is somewhat influencing the behavior of the younger child. Yes, yes. So for that, I would recommend, again, trying to find activities where you're less likely to see some of the problematic behaviors. Um, and 
and having both children participate in those activities together. Um, so for example, like maybe it's, it's kicking a soccer ball outside, but um, monitoring that interaction so that you can, you know, make it clear what, what are the appropriate behaviors for this activity and what are the inappropriate behaviors. And again, consistent follow through with consequences. So you're showing as a parent, you know, what you're making it clear, like what's appropriate behavior and that appropriate behavior leads to rewards and praise um, and inappropriate behavior doesn't. And you can actually, um, I find it helpful sometimes to, you know, like you, you can praise let's say, um, um, you know, you can praise positive behaviors in both the ADHD, ch child with ADHD and the sibling with, who does not have ADHD. Like, oh, you're sitting really nicely. I would like, you know, so-and-so to also sit really nice, uh, to sit quietly with, you know, um, you know, with your bottom on the seat or however you want to describe uh, the expectation. Dr. Kluzger. Um, so we have another parent who's asking about the timer. Um, the parent is saying that she is using the timer, but once she starts to use it with the child, the child starts to scream um, and really doesn't know what to do about the screaming, um, of when, when uh, to use the timer, when not to use it. Any suggestions on that? Yes. So sometimes, you know, um, we have these interventions that in general are helpful for, for kids with ADHD and emotion dysregulation. Um, but I find that it's really not a one size fits all kind of business. Um, so you might have to find other visuals if a child is reacting negatively to the timer. Um, one kind of visual you can try using is a first then visual. Um, like, you know, first you, you do this, um, you know, um, you do this, you follow through with this direction, or you do this, this task or activity, and then you get what you want. You know, that could be a simpler way of, of doing it. Um, so I would explore different kinds of visuals to, um, to put a cap on, you know, to help children transition to, to the next activity, maybe a visual schedule. Um, also, I find that with these techniques, the devil sometimes is in the details, for, um, you know, seriously. And so, for example, I, um, I have one, there's one app that I found. It's, um, it's free and $1 if you remove the ads, which I recommend doing. Um, it's called Countdown. Um, and you can actually customize the, so basically it, it shows, um, in a certain color, the amount of time that the child has left and, and that amount of time gets, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller, but it gradually reveals a picture as the amount of time left in an activity decreases. Um, and you can customize that to actually have a, a picture of the child, him or herself. You can, you know, get it from your photo gallery and your iPhone, basically, um, and upload that into the system. Um, so sometimes, again, you might want to just experiment with, like, what kind of visual timer you're using. And, and you might find that that makes a difference. Okay, thank you, Dr. Kluzger. So our next question um, comes from a parent who's asking, what is the best way to explain to older siblings why the younger child with ADHD acts differently than them? Right. 
So, um, you know, again, where you can use that whole Ferrari brain analogy, um, you know, you can say that everybody has their areas of strengths and things that they're working on. Um, and the things that children with ADHD tend to be working on is putting the brakes on their behavior um, and even in putting the brakes on their emotions, so to speak, or shifting or, you know, changing from um, uh, transitioning from, you know, um, emotional outbursts, let's say, to being able to self-soothe. Um, so, and, and again, I want to emphasize that, you know, you see children who are at various levels of intellectual functioning, and, and they can seem very high functioning in, in many areas, but still have um, pretty profound difficulties in emotion regulation. So I would want to explain that to children and, you know, a child-friendly way how, you know, we, we have various, there's so many different skills and abilities that um, we're built to have as humans and everybody has a unique profile. Okay, thank you, Dr. Kluzker. Um, so we have another parent who uh, says that he has uh, two children, one in middle school and one in high school with ADHD. Do you recommend changes to strategies as they age? Yeah, I think that you always have to um, consider, you know, consider altering and modifying and, you know, changing certain strategies um, as the child gets older to render them more age appropriate. Um, I really think that it's important for a child to buy in to the strategies that you're using so they don't feel like it's being imposed on them. Um, so yeah, definitely, um, it's hard to answer that question without knowing anything about the child. Cause again, I work with children who are, who are so different, you know, and, and so just saying like high school versus middle school, there's so much more information that I think, you know, we would need to know about the particular children because, you know, you can have a child in middle school who has, you know, more developed, better developed social emotional skills than a child in high school. So age alone is not the only thing we want to consider, but of course we want to consider maturity level and, and what their interests are in order to engage them. Definitely. Um, so Dr. Kaluska, our next question is also about a teenage son. Um, he has ADHD, dyslexia, um, as well as um, you know, other, other uh, disorders, um, but those two that were mentioned. Um, he has some emotional control, um, not able, has issues with emotional control, things like talking back, is very disrespectful. Um, so do you have any thoughts or any strategies you can share um, for older kids? Yes. I think that with older kids, um, what becomes more important is the art of negotiation with them. Um, you know, so of course you want to follow a lot of the same strategies that you're following for younger kids in terms of setting them up for success and um, implementing consequences consistently. Um, but I think it's, it becomes even more important with teenagers to teach them the art of compromise and to be willing to engage them in that in, in negotiating. Um, I think also, um, uh, what was I going to say? So yes, there is the importance of negotiating with teenagers. Um, of course the consequences are going to change, you know, like removing privileges as opposed to timeouts, of course. So that, that's another difference, um, between teenagers. Um, oh, and also, you know, they're, they, 
teenagers are oftentimes fighting for independence, right? So again, we want to make sure that they're engaged in the strategies. Uh, many times parents uh, with with um, older children will come to me and their main concern is disorganization, for example. The organizational skills that I teach are, you know, they're, they're pretty straightforward, like using checklists, you know, um, using planners and calendars, you know, they're things that are kind of, they're, they're pretty simple and straightforward. What makes it difficult for these strategies to be useful is whether or not the child, especially an older child, is, in, is engaged in it because, Oftentimes parents find that it's less effective, again, to impose these strategies on, especially on older children. And you want them to, you know, even come up with some of the strategies themselves, like give them some, some more um, what we call psychoeducation, you know, telling them about giving them more information about their difficulties and what can be helpful with their difficulties and giving them the sense that they're taking the lead with their treatments. Okay, thank you, Dr. Kaluska. Those were actually some really great uh, suggestions. And thank you for joining us. This concludes today's webcast.